We didn't leave Tasha talk about ask? her chapter. Oh, it's not about her. <laughs> She's only every episode. In case you exactly. haven't noticed anything. We're overexposed with Tasha. Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, I'm joined with Matt... Um, no, I'm not. We're not joined by Matt. <laughs> I'm joined by Arch and Jeremy. Today, Matt is in absentia. And we are delighted to have Elizabeth Cox on the uh, on the podcast today. Elizabeth is the author of the new book, Making Space, A History of New Zealand Women in Architecture. And um, it was the book was just uh, officially launched in Auckland uh, last night to a, a very enthusiastic crowd. I was uh, really um, delighted to be able to uh, be there uh, and enjoy that. Elizabeth, congratulations. This is an incredible book, um, uh, quite an ambitious project. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about how you... Um, came to have this idea to write about women in architecture. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm from Wellington and I'm an architectural historian. And one day I was flicking through a book um, that was the history of every architect who ever worked in Wellington from 1840 to 1940. And in that there was only one woman. Um, and that was Lucy Greenish, who was the very first registered woman architect in New Zealand. She registered in 1914. Um, and I put a bookmark on her page and decided to stalk her life to find out more about her. So um, I, I'm a social historian and a women's historian as well as being an architectural historian. So, so looking um, for her and her details kind of launched me off into um, this project. So what I found was the most remarkable story. She registered, um, as I say, in 1914. Her brother was also an architect and he was big in the NZIA, which was very, very new at the time. And um, sh she uh, was working during the First World War and then um, I discovered that she'd had an illegitimate baby and she'd gone to Australia to have this baby like lots of New Zealand women did. Uh, Robin Hyde was one who preceded her doing that. And she left the baby behind in Australia. Um, she had um, become pregnant when she was in her mid-30s, so it must have been a terrible, and single, and it must have been a terrible, mm. terrible thing to have happened to her. And um, as I say, she left the baby behind, but when I did more research, I discovered that that baby was still alive. <laughs> she was in her 90s and had her birth certificate, which had her mum's name on it, Lucy Greenish, but had a blank space where her father was. And this baby, who now 90, was still hunting for her father, wanted to desperately know who her father was. Um, so then I tracked down all of the other details about Lucy, including finding uh, an advertisement in the Hutt News in the 1920s to say she was setting up her own sole practice. So, I mean, not only was she for the first registered architect, woman architect, but also the first woman to set up her own business in sole practice, um, you know, almost exactly 100 years ago now. Uh, so I went looking in National Archives for her registration application when she applied to um, the NZIA to um, become registered. And as I went through these enormous boxes of all the registration files, I found more women. And then I went up to the Victoria um, Beagle Hall room to look at their books 
for listing all the women who were trying to get educated in that time period and found more again. So in that short space of fine time, I found all these extra women, and then from there it just got bigger and bigger. And at first my project, because I'm a historian, my project was only going to be maybe going up to the Second World War or 1950 or something nice and contained like that. Um, (laughs) But it just got bigger and bigger. Um, And then when I I was very lucky enough to get a contract with um, Nicola Leggett at Massey University Press, she agreed to take on the book, but she said, but only if you come up to the present day. So they added another 80 years worth of (laughs) people to write about. Uh, And um, so as well as coming forward from Lucy, I also went backwards. So um, I found a couple of people prior to Lucy. So the first woman who, who not she never registered, but the first woman to um, qualify as an architect in the old system of doing articles um, was Kate Beath, who was um, Catherine Sh- uh, Kate Shepherd's niece. Mm-hmm. So she was part of that well-educated cultural elite from Christchurch and she was trained up by Samuel Husega. And he had met her, or either within that sort of elite circle, or he had taught her at the Canterbury School of Art. She she did lots of engineering papers and design papers and drawing papers. And then he took her into his um, into his firm and trained her in articles and signed a contract with her dad. Her dad was the Beath of Beath's um, the store, the very famous store down there. And so I managed to track down her family and her family have the contract that she signed with Samuel Hersega, all of her certificates from um, her study at Canterbury School of Art um, and some of her work. Uh, And um, so I could prove that she was the first because Samuel Hersega signed a piece of paper to say you have completed your contract and your articles and you hereby um, and he wished her all the best in her career um, and then I found in that same set of documents that the family had a series of letters that um, Seeger wrote to her while they were both overseas traveling so um, they were both in Europe at the same time and she was traveling around England and he was writing to her explaining to her how to look at architecture how to how to see a building in a way that would help her become an architect in the future. It was mm. just the just the most amazing collection of letters. Mm. Um, so that sort of recognition that a male, one of our most important male architects of the time was really supportive of her and her career was pretty special. Um, the weird thing was that Um, she married a pharmacist um, after she'd been to the UK and come back and she was back in New Zealand for a couple of years when she married and she had some sons and after she died her sons went through her her letters and things and that's the first time they ever found out she was an architect she'd Mm. never mentioned it before (laughs) to them Uh, so I met um, her, one of her son's widows, and she was really generous about letting me have a look at all these things. Yeah, um, and then um, I haven't given you guys a chance to say anything yet, but <laughs> um, 
Even further back, I found a couple of women who were in early colonial times working, and so they wouldn't be called architects with a capital A, they weren't qualified. But one of them was Marian Ray, who designed um, the church at Wakefield um, near Nelson. And um, Cherie Jacobson, who wrote that chapter in the book, I asked her, because there was a tiny reference in the book um, in some historic records that said, oh, maybe Marian Ray designed it. And Bill Mackay in his fabulous book about churches said that it said that it was designed by her. And I set Cherie the challenge of um, proving to me that it really that she really had designed it. <laughs> <laughs> and so Cherie went through all the records of the church and she actually found several pieces of evidence which convinced me without a shadow of a doubt that it was Marianne who designed it. So she was married to the Church Missionary Society minister for that parish and the man who built it wrote um, that she had designed it. So mm -hmm. she he built it to her instructions and there's no reason to think that he would have made that up. So um, there's an amazing, in the um, book we've reused one of the photos from Bill Mackay's um, book that was taken by Jane Usher of the interior and it's just the most beautiful thing. And also in that chapter, Cherise talked about the shop that um, Mary Taylor designed um, in Wellington, in the, also in the 1840s. And again, she writes very clearly in her letters that it was her who designed that mm. shop. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been quite a, um, uh, an investigative piece as well, mm. certainly those early stories. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is um, really amazing is that you have covered as you say, the, the architecture and architects with a small a, those kind of first initial moves into um, making and being involved within the building process. Um, how um, how did, uh, was that something that you intended to do from the, be the beginning or was that sort of a, a period, um, did that come out of the, that initial work that you do and kind of want, did and want, wanting to find um, the genesis, I guess, of, of these stories, how it all began? Um, I think it was more talking to current women architects and people within the profession who who insisted that I consider the fact that architecture is bigger than just registered architects. Mm. And um, especially for women, because a lot of women can't get registered or don't get registered, but they still have an amazing influence on our built heritage. And so um, their influence made me think about it in a bigger picture. Mm. And so in the book, there's... Um, there's a chapter by Lucy Treep about women involved in landscape architecture, um, which is really great. I really enjoyed that chapter. Um, one of the uh, amazing things about the book was that um, I managed to get um, 30 authors, all women, um, involved in writing about the um, about their profession. So lots of the authors are architects or architectural historians or academics. Um, it started off because I didn't want to write um, myself about Māori women architects, so I managed to convince Deidre Brown to write a chapter. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger from there and um, managed to talk and talk lots and lots of people into, into writing for me. Um, so some of them were their specialisms and, and some of them just people just put up their hands and generously offered to write about something that they were interested in. It's interesting looking through it 
because this is the first time I've seen it as an object, Elizabeth, and um, rather than feeling like a set of stories from the margins, it feels like a story of abundance, and I wondered if it started to feel like that when you were creating it. Yeah, um, up until about the 70s, I couldn't, um, as because I worked on it so hard, I could name every single woman who was registered because <laughs> mm. I had records of every single one of them. But after that, it just, you know, I, there's no way I could know them all now, obviously. Um, but, yeah, it's that, it's that idea that um, there's so many women working now, but actually there were so many before. It's just that people have forgotten about them. Um, and so, for example, one of the chapters is about, or two of the chapters is about women working on their own homes, because I thought, at women architects, because I thought that was a really good way of, a lot of women are, use their own homes as a way of, um, of demonstrating their own skill and testing ideas and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so there's two chapters about that because often it's a great way of talking about about them using their, their skills and all that sort of thing. <laughs> does it also feel like a, I guess there's a, there's a few things going on there, but does it also feel like a corrective to a possible historical narrative of invisibility? Um, there's a, there are a couple of books that say things, you know, in the canon of historic archi architecture history that say there were no women working in New Zealand prior to 1945, things like that. Uh, and it's quite clear from this book that that's not true. Mm. <laughs> now, I think hopefully we've proved that not to be the case. Um, obviously, modern authors about architecture are much better um, these days about including women um, in their books as much as possible. But there's a really long lag. Um, and it was really hard to find information, you know, because I'm really good at doing the historical research and the really old women. But that sort of from the 60s to the 80s, it's really mm. hard to find out about them. Um, so I, um, you know, I did lots and lots of research to try and improve the record that we have about them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, it was really interesting last night at the launch because the feeling in the room was quite, um, it, it was really special. It was it was warm. There was this real enthusiasm. And I think a kind of collective, ah, you know, finally this book is here. We didn't know we needed it. But because um, it's drawn together all of these threads um, of, of different stories of women in architecture, over a long period of time, but also including today, I think women can see them. Women architecture, women in architecture can see themselves in the book, and that's a really powerful thing. Mm. Um, did you uh, have? Um, did, I, obviously, the book grew in its um, breadth and scope from your initial ideas. <laughs> I imagine it might, might have been a, a much faster project uh, if it had sort of stuck to the the original scope. Um, how did you find, did you find that the book started to have a life of its own to some degree once you started getting other people involved? And what was it like working with a kind of <laughs> a cast of yeah. many <laughs> as opposed to just on your own? Um, oh, it, was, it was amazing. For example, um, one of the women in here is um, Monica Barham, who was an architect who um, 
Um, her dad was Alan Ford, a Invercargo architect, and and he trained her, and then she came up to um, up to Auckland University here to finish her qualification, and then went back to Invercargo. And she and her husband Cecil, who was also an architect, had a real influence over Invercargo architecture, and they were quite quite unusual architects. They were doing some interesting things. Um, their own home was quite unusual and modern and Megan had never heard of them before and so I was able to provide her with the information that I had um, found and then she took took that information and made it into something much bigger than I could have because she did this cycle tour around Southland and Otago and went and visited all of these places that Monica had designed because she was particularly into designing churches. And so there's a whole lot of Methodist and um, Presbyterian churches all over Otago and Southland designed by her. And Megan contacted all sorts of people that um, Monica had known and her family and all that sort of thing. And so that local um, that local context, mm. context was really important for her chapter. And, you know, that's something that I couldn't have pulled off. Um, and so all, from all over the country, I was getting all these um, these messages from people all over the place saying, I found out this and I found out that. And, yeah, it was pretty special. Um, a lot of it was written during lockdown. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, uh, one of the chapters was um, by Karamea Muller about Pacific architects, and she did um, a series of talanoa over Zoom. Um, to write her chapter and so again that's something that I couldn't have done Mm. but she's um, I'm really proud of that chapter because she's really embraced the the youthful nature of Pacific architecture in New Zealand and and those series of women and really given them a chance to speak for themselves Mm. there's a lot of um, a lot of real rich detail about what it's like to be a young woman Pacific architect in New Zealand Mm. yeah Um, when I was writing the book, I didn't want it just to be about gender. I wanted it to be about diversity generally. And so apart from Deirdre Brown's book, obviously, about Maori architecture, there's very little written about the importance of diversity in architecture and in our built environment. And so all of the chapter authors were challenged with embracing that idea. Um, so they've tried to um, bring in as much cultural diversity as well as gender into the book. Um, another thing I did when I was writing was I did a huge oral history project, which is really time-consuming. <laughs> so I interviewed 27 women for the book, um, really long interviews, which hopefully will go into the um, National Library one day, and it'll be a real resource for the future. So hopefully other people will listen to those interviews in the future, and um, it'll be value for, valuable for them as well. And again, I did lots of that in COVID, so I could talk to people about what it was like to try and manage a business and make their business survive during COVID, which um, was really fascinating. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably going to phrase this really badly, but I'll give it a crack. Um, I was thinking about how this book exists alongside but doesn't feel bound by the conversation that especially women in architecture are burdened by is that, you know, why are there not more women in architecture and then we ask women to answer that question as if mm. it's the problem they created. Um, but in, in a sense, it feels like the book is existing in parallel with that conversation without getting kind of bound up in it. But I wondered if that's how you felt about the book and how do you think it sits in relation to that narrative, which is, um, I mean, um, 
for people like Linda Simmons, she's like, can we please not talk about that when we had her on the podcast? Mm. She's so tired of answering <laughs> the same questions that, again, aren't her issue. Yeah, so yeah. How, how do you feel it sits in that space? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I A lot of the interviews dealt with that because as well as being um, COVID times, it was also post Me Too. And so there, there were some pretty unpleasant stories and things mm. that people said to me, some of which didn't make it into the book. So <laughs> just for background, in, in case people don't know, the number of um, students, male and female students, have been um, at parity since about 2006, 2007, something like that. But only 27% of registered architects are women, mm. <laughs> you know, another 16 years later. So... It's not just a pipeline issue, I don't think, um, that there's other things going on. Um, and Linda Simmons <laughs> talked to me um, a lot and educated me a lot about what those issues were. Um, but it wasn't... And and I do make sure that I talk about those sort of things in the book, but I wanted to also just um, firstly honour those registered architects who are doing amazing work but then also embrace all of the other people who who went through architecture school, but then I've gone on to do other things. Mm. Um, so I gave them a chance to talk about um, their lives and what they've done with their lives as well. Um, and also academics, because there's heaps of women um, academics. Mm. And I really enjoyed writing that chapter about what it's like to be an academic um, in New Zealand. Uh, you know, starting from um, Helen Tippett, who um, was so important in the setting up of Victoria Architecture School and through Sarah Treadwell, of course, who <laughs> was so influential. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's that embracing of architecture being bigger than just registered architects. Yeah. Has it changed the way you <clears throat> look at architecture? I mean, obviously you have a very deep and particular lens on architecture yourself. How has that been refracted through the process <laughs> of making this book? Um, uh, definitely the idea of collaboration has been mm -hmm. very important. A lot of people talk to me about collaboration and they, um, they none, none of the women I talked to wanted me to get away with thinking that any project was just done by themselves. Mm. <laughs> um, and a lot of them talked about not just collaboration with other architects, but a lot of them talked about their amazing relationships with their builders, their mm. builders. <laughs> um, you know, uh, people like Judy Keith-Brown and Sharon Jansen and Mary Daish all talked to me about how their builders tell them that they'd much rather work for them than <laughs> any of the mm. men and uh, architects in Wellington because that uh, women are, I mean, I, I don't like to say that women are better or worse or whatever than anybody else, but I do get the sense that, that women architects are really good at that collaborative thing. And so... Um, it's made me, you know, realise that that's a really amazing um, um, part of what an architect does. And so that's why I enjoyed um, working with so many on the book was I was kind of honouring their collaboration by yeah. collaborating with, with lots of people as well. Because, uh, you know, normally historians just work away by themselves in an archive. And <laughs> um, so it pushed they pushed me into being better at that sort of thing. Mm, that's really interesting. You, um, 
you touch in there, I think it might be in the intro, um, and thank you for supplying all of the stuff in advance. It was fantastic to read it about the distinction between woman architects versus architects. And, and I won't go into that. You, you elaborate on that wonderfully. But you did note that despite that, you think woman architects bring something different to a building, an urban environment or a landscape. You just mentioned collaboration. Do you think there's other qualities you, what are some of the other qualities you saw? Uh, particularly in urban environments, I think, um, safety safety for women in those urban environments is i mean men just have no idea how scary it is to walk down the street by yourself sometimes they just you know it's just that constantly looking around yourself but i think maybe new zealand men only experience perhaps when they're overseas or you know (laughs) somewhere where they're feeling uncertain but women feel that all the time and i think um that that sort of safety thing is something that women bring to urban environments and and urban planning and all that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you agree, Natasha. (laughs) I I think so. I mean, I think there's a host of different uh, things that you bring to that and perhaps is an idea that, that an urban environment might need to be built for many different people of different abilities and mm. different feelings of safety and you know um it's all informed by experience obviously but uh mm, perhaps you're a little bit more flicked up to that than mm. than than some blokes. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, there's of plenty, of, plenty of sensitive designers out there of all genders. Yeah, of course, of yeah, course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you think it is about the process of the way we record history that had made so many of these women's contributions in the book so difficult to find? Mm. Um, it's because we, all architectural historians are, um, you know, they focus on the man who's got his, or the person who's got their name on the mm. firm. And so Samuel Hurst-Seeger, no one's recorded the fact that he employed women working for him. He employed more than one woman. Um, uh, he also employed Alison, who um, Julia Gatley's written about in the book, who went over and had the most amazing career overseas. Uh, and again, um, um, Frederick de Jersey Clare, one of our most important um, church architects, he had a woman working for him. And there's nothing in any of the records about her um, until I found her, um, you know, she was recording what her qualifications were to the NZIA and she said that she worked for him for a couple of years. And so that's that thing about we all pretend that the person whose name is on the firm is the person who actually does the work, which isn't true, of course. And so um, we lose all all the people who are actually doing the hard work. And I mean, that's... Um, even today and interestingly um, at least when I was doing this work you could sometimes find people's initials on architectural Mm. plans so even if you know Louis Hay had designed um, this building I could find the signature block on the signature block the fact that a draftswoman had drafted it for him but today, in the big firms, as I understand it, um, people aren't allowed to put their own initials on 
on the work that they do anymore. So again, architectural historians 50 years from now won't mm. really be able to tell who worked on what building. Mm. <laughs> Although on the counterpoint to that is that um, firms and architecture magazines have got much better at recording at the back, you know, and the teams, it, the teams the yeah. which is the good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> often you see a lot more women listed there um, nowadays whereas they would have been working on lots of those projects before and nobody knew. <laughs> and, and look, I think in fairness too, I mean, the drawing was the static thing mm. that got pushed out. Architecture isn't produced like that mm. anymore. It's yeah. a model that gets has many hands working on it um, and that's updated constantly. So mm. perhaps that's uh, <laughs> one of the bad yeah, things yeah. about it, I don't know. But I agree, it's great to see people recognising teams um, and in projects now which didn't used to happen mm. uh, at all um, and some of that talks to why it was so hard to find this information and why it's relatively not well known but you gave an example of someone who within their own family in the space of one or two generations yeah didn't yeah. know that they worked as an architect no, do you yes. know why or was that a common thing was that perhaps just a one-off here it's such a short span yeah to lose that knowledge well she must have actively not told her yeah. children so i mean i you, you can't i mean i just i don't know whether her husband didn't want her to say or what i don't yeah. i just don't know um what the what the story is there yeah you talked a lot about um women who were involved um actively in seeking out better living environments and i mean that in the broader sense for uh, their families themselves and in particular you touch on some of the indigenous women who are really um, uh, you know instrumental to those movements um, can you talk about that and did you have um, did you have help from other um, women in architecture on some of those um, subjects or how did they come to be? Um, well Deirdre Brown obviously wrote an amazing chapter for me about women working in um, a Maori woman working in architecture today. Uh, another person I wrote about was Tapuia, who was working in the um, in the Waikato. Obviously, she was a Kingitanga leader, and um, uh, Deirdre had previously written about her work on several buildings. Um, and I managed to find in my research a few new images of some of the houses that she had designed, and. Again, you, you kind of think, well, can it can she truly have actually designed these houses? But you go through all of the archives and, and there's no evidence to... Um, a number of people at the time said that she had designed them. Mm. Um, and um, she... I mean, Tapuia was, was an incredible person and she really wanted... Um, to save her people from the confiscations and this was the way she could do it was to bring people together and to um, regenerate um, Narawahia as the place for her people to stand and um, she had two beautiful buildings built there but also these very humble houses with with um, Raupu on the outside. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, while I was working on it, the British Library digitised a whole new set of photos and I found some more photos that hadn't been seen before of her inside these buildings, which mm. is pretty special, yeah. 
What brought you to architecture in the first place? <laughs> um, well, I worked for a long time for the um, for Heritage New Zealand, and so I used to manage um, buildings like Old St Paul's and Pincarry Lighthouse and Antrim House and lots of um, archaeological sites and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then when I left there, I set up my own business doing um, historical research about heritage buildings. So I work a lot with conservation architects like Chris Cochran. Um, to, so I write the, when they're writing a conservation plan about how to look after a heritage building, I write the historic record about the building and all of the changes that have happened to it. So I work with conservation architects to understand the fabric that they're looking at so that when they make suggestions about how to preserve it or change it, they know what's special about that building. Um, so I've been doing that for about a decade. Uh, so, um, But also my partner's an architect <laughs> at Studio Pacific. Yeah. <clears throat> so this, this project was kind of the perfect combination of mm. all of those things. One of the first thoughts I had when I was reading some of this about the difficulty of finding information and what you said about, I, I work at one of those firms with two names on the, on yeah. the letterhead, <laughs> and it immediately got me thinking about exactly like you said before, the sort of future history of these things. Um, do you think, not just the industry, but I guess anyone creating anything, what, what would you say to them for an advice of that sort of 50 years in the future? Are there obligations for sort of historical resilience or things <laughs> like that to do? Because you must come across dead ends yeah, often where, where yeah. you're just like, if you just scan, <laughs> if you just scan that letter or, yes, you yes. know, X that Y, yes. I would have such a richer tale to tell. That's right. Um, well, preserving photographs is very important and, and making them available. Uh, the um, the architecture library at Auckland, their amazing collection looked mm. after by Sarah Cox is an amazing resource. And, but she can only look after what she's got. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, um, when, when some of the authors contacted families, they found this, these amazing photographs and all sorts of things which made it into the book, but there's sure to be huge numbers of other things in there that I that I never found, I mean. Um, so yeah, um, storing all those things um, and storing family histories too. Um, uh, one of the people in here, um, her name had been written down incorrectly. It had been misspelled in, on, on the back of a photograph of the Auckland students who were studying during the Second World War. But my colleague Cherie um, was determined to find her <laughs> and somehow managed to work out what, what the correct spelling was and um, found... Found, and then found her married name and then managed to find a family history that had been written and then one copy was put into the National Library. And in there she writes about her entire architectural career. And so so um, preserving those sort of family histories in an archive is also really important. And then all the architectural plans, obviously. There's quite mm. a few firms around that have, I don't know about Warren Amani, but um, there's a lot of firms that have plan boxes full of stuff mm. that have that could be digitised and it could have been donated years ago because it's not being used anymore. Um, and that sort of thing's really, really important. Mm. So, yeah. 
put that on your to-do list. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what your archives are like. They're not bad. They're not the yeah. large amounts digital, but we mm. store everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it must be. I mean, what is it like? Is it heartbreaking when you hit a dead end? Like oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such a kind of adventure in a way too. Such a kind of um, such detective work. Yeah. yeah. And the importance of indexing, like yes, you were lucky yes. to find your way to that one. Yes. Sort of self-published family history. Yeah, absolutely. But almost that sounds accidental. Yes. Had you not had that sort of serendipitous course of events, that oh, book could right. have sat on that shelf for another 50 years yep. with no one even really knowing it's there. But do you get a nose <clears throat> for things like, hmm, maybe there's another spelling to yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I spend a lot of time on Ancestry. Um, I pay for a subscription because it's absolutely worth it because I mm. spend a lot of time stalking people through through their family history right. archives and, you know, you can track down every single at least every three years, you can usually find someone from the electoral role and where they were working uh, or living, I mean. And then often, often it says their profession. Often for women, unfortunately, it just says spinster. <laughs> Even if she was also an architect, it still says spinster. But it's really lovely when all of a sudden they start They've obviously said to whoever's keeping those electoral records, no, I'm not a spinster anymore. I want to be called an architect, which is pretty special. There was one woman who went to Australia and I found her um, Australian um, electoral role and she called herself an architect quite early on, which was pretty special. You're talking about that serendipitous thing. Um, I, uh, in the book, really early on, there was a woman, Florence Field, who um, wrote an article about the kitchen she designed in the 1920s. Was that the page that had a photo and it said, a, a kitchen designed yes, by a woman? Yes, a kitchen designed by a woman, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so it's all that that um, that real, that sort of time and motion study about how you move around a space and, and reducing the number of steps that you have to take from that space to that space and all that sort of thing. And she's really carefully analysed that and carefully analysed the, um, the type of floor coverings and wall coverings and everything to keep everything completely um, hygienic. And she talks about this being a kitchen that... Um, uh, for her to work in, all that sort of thing. So I had I had that article and I had the plans from that article, and and I thought, well, I doubt this building survived. I didn't have any um, image of what it looked like from the outside. And then I was talking about it to Ian Bowman, who's a conservation architect from Nelson, and I said, I don't suppose this this you know you know anything about this, and he said, no, no, I don't think so. And then. I had another conversation with him maybe a year later and he said, oh, I know that house. I used to babysit in that house. Wow. <laughs> That's serendipity. Uh, yeah. That was amazing, amazing. And so um, I... Is it still around? Yes. So, um, oh, because what had happened was I'd found a historic photo of it taken uh, in the, maybe the... 20s or the 30s and I showed that photo to Ian and he said oh yes I know that house I used to babysit in it and it um, turned out that the um, the family that owns it um, their granddaughter is a young woman architectural student in Wellington wow. so Mary Dash put me in contact with her and her um, the plans for the house are still in there in the house and um, and lots of the original images of that Florence had drawn, and photos of Florence herself. So yeah, I was really fortunate that um, 
that that all pieced together. Mm. And so I'm sure that I'm going to get lots of um, emails mm. in the future saying, well, you didn't work out this and you didn't yeah. work out that and why isn't this mentioned? But <laughs> I, I did my best. <laughs> These are the perils of doing a book, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what does one do after finishing a four-year yeah. life <laughs> and writing a book like this? Um, Can you think about what's next? Or? Well, I have gone to, back to my day job. I work for the Ministry for Culture and Heritage um, and I'm the general editor of Tiara, which uh-huh. is the encyclopedia mm. you probably all know but yeah I do have some uh well some thoughts about my next project but um my sons um keep reminding me that I made them you know in my darkest days when everything was feeling a bit too hard <laughs> I made them promise um to remind me that I wasn't going to do another book <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a habit of signing up to these deals right? yeah. <laughs> yes but only if you bring it up to present day. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to mention one particular chapter I was really proud of, is which is the chapter about um, the regeneration of Christchurch after the earthquakes. Uh, so Jessica Halliday, Halliday's written that chapter. She's an architectural historian like me um, from Christchurch, but she is really embedded within the architecture community down there. And um, it's the only geographic chapter in the book, but... What she's done, she's really embraced that idea that architecture isn't just by architects. So she's really embraced the idea of the importance of Naitahu women and and the amazing project that's going on down there to, you know, rebuild a first world city. It's 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 really special. I'm really proud of that chapter. I think Jessica's done an amazing job. Um, and I'm really hoping that the women of Christchurch feel really honoured by that chapter. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like the profession is making space for women architects and other practitioners in a way that kind of honours the memory of the women that you featured in the book? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> um, I had some great conversations with women in big firms um you know i had a i wrote a chapter about um women involved in designing um education spaces and hospital spaces and so i had lots of conversations with jazzmax women and because they're doing amazing things at jazzmax and that the um the university buildings that they're all doing is is amazing and they you know, the, their education team is is more than half women, I think. And so, I mean, I think maybe um, they would say that they feel like there's definitely, you know, that everybody's got the space that they need within those teams. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think the battle's over, though. <laughs> um, and I think the 27% being registered architects is, you know, there's still a long way to go. Mm. Um, Linda Simmons, even though she didn't want to talk about it, she talked to me about the fact that when she teaches young women at university, because it's 50-50 parity within those schools, a lot of them say to her, um, what are you talking about, Linda? It's fine, you know, I'll be fine when I go out into into the world, you know. And then she reckons, almost like clockwork, about seven years later they will mm. come back to her and say, actually, this is really hard. Mm. You know, the, the the trying to have a family and trying to get registered and and progress 
is it is really challenging. And what happens is that women go off to um, look after their children, and that's exactly the same time as 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 their firms are looking around for someone to promote, mm-hmm. and they're missing, <laughs> so they miss out. Mm. <laughs> because it, because it's a, such a slow burn thing, architecture. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you can even after you get registered, depending on when you do that. I mean, you, you're quite a few years out of. Uh, architecture school before you start really hitting your yeah. mm. hitting your straps and 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 being worthwhile and mm. the and the uh, worthwhile contributor. That's not true. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Do you want me to cut this bit out? Yes, please. I would like you to You're cut this out. You're worthless. <laughs> I'm tired. Sorry. That's all I did. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. But it's it's just. It's such a long while until you start. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you're, you know, you're hinting at, of course, beyond registration, it's um, being, um, you know, in leadership positions within those yeah, practices. Totally. Yeah, totally. Mm. Um, where can people get this? <laughs> uh, so I'm sure by the time this comes out, it'll be in the shops. It's coming out on the 20th of October. Great. So it's the 17th today. Yes. I won't be able to get it turned around in time. So <laughs> will be, it will be out by the time you're, this is reaching your ears now in all reputable bookstores, etc. Perfect Christmas gift. Perfect yes. Christmas gift. Yeah. Well, um, it's a beautiful book. Um, and like I said, we've seen a few chapters, but to see it here um, in print is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you very Four much. Four years of making <laughs> this wonderful thing. And, um, um, you know, for me, the chapters that I read, I learned so much, and I particularly liked the chapters of the really early stories. They were absolutely brand new ground for me. Um, and um, I'm sure every other chapter in there <laughs> is like that. And, and, you know, on the cover it says edited by, but I think you've written... 13 of the chapters and the epilogue. I think it's 18, actually. Which, <laughs> which really undersells um, the amount that you've put into it, Elizabeth. So um, it, it's absolutely fantastic. I look forward to getting a copy and I encourage everyone to do so. And thanks so much for making time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks. Congratulations.